Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Nat Strawn and Allie. Hey guys, um, if you're seeing this in your notifications right now, maybe you just logged into Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you're like, what the fuck? It's Monday. Why is this in my feed? Don't they normally post on Wednesday? The answer is yes. This is actually something new that we are trying out for the very first time. We are going to release a case update today on two topics that we have covered in the past. This is probably going to be about 15 minutes and we've never done it before. So if you like it, go ahead and let us know and maybe we'll do it again in the future. Yep. And if this is your first time to listen to the podcast, we highly recommend listening to each one of the episodes that corresponds with the case. Today we are talking about The Boy in the Box and Christmas Tree Jane Doe. The Boy in the Box we covered in July of 2021, episode 79 of the podcast. And Christmas Tree Jane Doe we covered in December of 2021 as episode 94. Yes. So if you don't know those stories, like Natalia said, we highly recommend that you go back and listen to those first before listening to the update. But for those of you who have already listened to the episodes, since it has been uh, over a year, for each of them, we're going to go ahead and provide you with a really short refresher Mm -hmm. for each case, starting with the boy in the box. If you want to watch the press conference for this story, you can go into the show notes and I will have it linked there. It is about 40 minutes long. I watched it a couple of days ago when it first came out. And so just a refresher on the story. In February of 1957, two young men separately stumbled upon the nude dead body of a small boy, estimated to be somewhere between three to five years old at a dump site on the side of the road in Fox Chase, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Initially, neither of the young men reported their findings to the police, but on February 26, 1957, one of the young men was persuaded to go to the police station by a priest from his school who he had confided in. Upon finding the body, the police noted that the child had likely been placed there no sooner than a few days prior to the discovery, based on the fact that the cardboard box he was found in did not appear to be soggy or deteriorating, despite the fact that it had been snowing out. During the autopsy report, many injuries were documented on the boy, including bruises, cuts, incision marks, and signs of severe malnutrition and stunted growth, which suggested a long history of abuse. 
The cause of death was described by the medical examiner as blunt force trauma, and he elaborated further in his report by saying he believed the boy had been beaten to death. Interestingly, the boy's nails on both hands and feet were cut, and his hair had been freshly cut as well, though in a crude, rushed manner with small tufts of hair still clinging to his body, as if he had been wet just before or just after death. The police discovered many clues at the scene of the crime and followed up on all of these leads, but despite their best efforts, nothing seemed to pan out. Here is a partial list of some of the things that investigators did from 1957 to the 2000s in an attempt to identify the boy. They tracked down as many people as possible who had purchased a specific bassinet from JCPenney that came in the same box as the one the boy was found in. They talked to the manufacturer of a blanket found on the boy in an attempt to see if they could track down the buyers in the area. They attempted to track down the owner of a brand new custom-made newsboy cap found near the boy's body. They interviewed over 143 shop owners and employees in nearby stores, circulated over 100,000 flyers. They did TV news segments, radio news segments. They took and circulated both autopsy photos and posed clothed photos of the boy, circulating those to the general public in the hopes that someone would recognize him. They offered a reward. They got the story on America's Most Wanted. And in 1998, the boy's body was exhumed for DNA testing, where they collected samples at that time. And they ran down thousands of tips, including interviewing hundreds of people over the years who have claimed to be either related to the boy or know who the boy was. But all of these leads were ultimately dead ends because through DNA testing, the police could determine that everyone who came forward was not related to the boy. Fast forward December 8th, 2022, we just had a really big news press conference and I jotted down a couple of notes here. I'm going to go ahead and read the notes that I made from this presser. And then Natalia and I are going to just spend a couple minutes talking about our thoughts before we move on to Christmas tree Jane Doe. So notes from the presser. The main thing is they discovered the name of this boy, the identity of this boy. His name is Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Dr. Chu indicated that based on the facts presented and the conclusions of the genetic genealogists, the death certificate for the unknown child, OME number 57-0863, would be amended to reflect the child's birth name, Joseph Augustus Zarelli. He was born in 1953. Joseph's date of birth is January 13th, 1953. His birth certificate was located, and it was located in Pennsylvania, indicating that he was born in 1953. The police are not releasing any information about which hospital or which city. They also noted in their press conference that no Social Security number was ever issued to this boy. A request was sent to the Social Security Administration Office of Inspector General to determine if a Social Security number had ever been issued in the name of the child. The response from the Social Security Administration was that there had not been. And parents' names are not being released at this time because both are already deceased. Um, I would like to address three questions which I believe most of you would like an answer to. The first is going to be, who are the child's parents and what are their names? At this point in time, we are not going to be releasing that information. Joseph has a number of siblings on both the mother and father's side who are living and it is out of respect for them that their parents' information remain confidential. They did confirm that the boy has living siblings on both sides of his family, and they confirmed that the child was a little over four years old when he died. Something that I wrote down, this quote from the press conference that I thought was interesting, the officer that was 
answering questions said, if this technology, which meaning genetic genealogy, because that's how they discovered the identity of the boy. He said, if this technology had been available to us 20 years ago, we may have been able to interview people. And that was in response to a reporter asking if they were going to be pressing charges against anyone. Do we know who was responsible for Joseph's death? The answer at this time is unfortunately no. We have our suspicions as to who may be responsible, but it would be irresponsible of me to share these suspicions as this remains an active and ongoing criminal investigation. It's going to be an uphill battle to, for us to, to definitively determine who caused this child's death. If this, if this technology had been available to us 20 years ago, it might have been a completely different, you know, different story. Um, because once you identify who the child is, and then that's what you, you, be, you start beginning with family members. Well, at this point in time, a lot of the family members who would have been old enough to, to have a memory of any, of any incident that might have occurred are, you know, normally long gone. When asked about the parents by a reporter, the law enforcement officer answering the questions confirmed that the boy's father was listed as the father on his birth certificate, but that the name was incomplete. Okay, so it is, it is going to be the person that's on the birth certificate, all right? The name on the birth certificate is not, is not exact. It's not exact, all right? I'm going to leave it at that. So his name is Joseph Augustus Zarelli, um, and he finally has his name back. He finally has his identity back, thank God. Um, they're in the process of switching out his grave marker right now. It used to say America's Unknown Child, and now it's going to finally have the correct information. Joseph... Augustus Sorelli will no longer be that boy in the box and will no longer be unknown. Natalia, what are your thoughts? This is crazy. I mean, this is a case from the 50s finally getting solved in 2022. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I don't know. It's really sad because it's too little too late, you know, but I, I don't really know how to feel about it because it's, um, it's one of those things where it's like, the the people who could have benefited the most from this information going public would be, I guess, just the boy's family, perhaps, if they were still out there and, like, you know, he had been kidnapped or perhaps if the parents were abusive or someone else was abusive, maybe they were still still doing it, you know? And so perhaps we could have caught the person who was doing this and saved some other people but it was just like so late you know and I, i'm not meaning to be a debbie downer but it's just sad because i i have a child that's a boy so it's hard to not think you know if this was my child and i'm sure other people can relate too like what if that was your brother or your sister or something like i don't know it's it's just really sad and i will say the first time that genetic genealogy was used in general to solve a crime was in 2018 so it is a fairly new process but they did say in the press conference that they are not giving up they're going to keep running it down talking to siblings talking talking to anyone who's still alive and see what they can figure out um, and apparently they're going to test some of the items that were found at the scene of the crime um, again and compare it to different DNA samples of some of the living siblings to see if it could have been someone related. Yeah, there, there are a couple pieces of, of evidence in our custody, all right, one, one of which we're, we're doing a, an examination for possible DNA, all right, it was an article of clothing that was left at the crime scene. Um, but, you know, like I said, the, the evidence between then and now, it's, it, it, it's diminishes, just like the child's DNA degraded became very, very difficult to extract a, a strain of DNA that was 
that was viable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope there's something else that comes out of this. You know, I don't I feel like it's inappropriate to be like, well, if you look at the glass half full here, so I'm just not even going to try to do that. I'm just going to say that um, I'm glad that we have this technology that perhaps can help some people in the future. Yeah, definitely. And they did say in their press conference they're already applying this these new techniques to current unsolved cases that they have. So, yeah, hopefully there's a lot more that comes out of this. Something that I thought was interesting is his last name is, like, pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Zarelli. Yeah. Like, I've I've never heard that name before. I, I recognize it as Italian, but I don't know anyone by that last name. And when I was looking up um, people with the last name Zarelli, there's not that many people with that last name. But the ones who are still living, there's a ton of people in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Washington. So with the exception of Washington, it seems like the Zarelli clan really didn't move that far away. So maybe they can still talk to people and and figure this out, you know, figure out why anyone remembers anything. Yeah, Yeah, I just like that's the thing to me is that I just want so badly to understand why. Like there were so many things that if you just wanted to get rid of somebody, why not execute them in a way that was more humane, right? Like, why was this person, this child abused for so long? But I guess those are answers that we'll never have, because if you're like a sane fucking normal person, right. you would never understand why someone would do that. Of course. Yeah, great point. Some Something else that I wanted to say, too, is that, you know, keep in mind our listeners out there that one of the theories was that this boy's mother could have been an abuse victim herself because the dump site was located near a quote unquote home for wayward girls, um, which had a lot of teen girls that were victims of abuse, uh, mental health issues. Some of the women at these shelters later came out and said, oh, I had been sexually assaulted while I was in this facility or a similar facility in the area in the 50s and 60s. So that's something to keep in mind, too. I mean, maybe the mom never said anything because she wasn't of sound mind and gave birth to a child and perhaps the father took the child away or the child was put up for adoption and then the adoptive parents were abusing the child. I don't know. The 50s were like a fucking free for all. And there's obviously a lot of work that still needs to be done with our adoption system. I see shit on TikTok all the time from people that have been adopted and talking about how terrible of an experience it is. So I don't know. I mean, the possibilities are are really endless with what this could have what who could have caused this, you know, Mm -hmm. could have been a, a trafficked child. One of the theories was that this was a refugee child. Um, that's something that the police did early on is look at pictures of everyone that came through immigration that were around that age. So, man, we really don't know. And I I hope that they do eventually release more information. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they will. It sounds like now they have something to go off of. So they're right. probably going to be a little bit quiet for a while while they try to figure out what's going on without revealing everything that they have because they don't want to show their hand just yet if there is someone out there that still could be held responsible. Yeah. And I'm sure they don't want to say too much because they want their chance to talk to these people, people who are related without the press getting involved. Right. Hitting up everyone and standing outside people's homes asking for exclusive interviews. So the last note I had from the press conference is it was really infuriating to me. And I don't know if I don't know if I'm like right in feeling this way or not, but it was really infuriating to me listening to some of the reporters questions there was one reporter in particular that basically implied that 
this is a waste of money and police resources. And why aren't the police focusing on current crimes? Why are they focusing on historical crimes? And that really made me mad because I don't think people understand, like, your loved one could turn into a historical crime. Like, if some, if I get murdered today and they just don't solve it for 10 years, does that mean I don't ever, like, deserve to have modern technology applied to my case? I think it's more for the, like, the victims, right? It's yeah. for the families. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's for the prevention of future violent crimes. Like, if we are able to figure out what happened, then we might be able to put someone away before they can do something else. We might be able to save someone from the same fate. Right. Especially with new technology. How is it not worth it to see if new technology even works with crime solving? Now we know it does. This has been applied to a couple different cases since 2018. Super new technology. I think the more practice we get with genetic genealogy and forensic genealogy, the better. Um, I don't see any downside to solving this case. And then the other thing that irritated me was this this one reporter kept asking the most basic, stupid questions that I was like, did you not even do an ounce of research before coming to this press conference? The lady was trying to say, oh, oh, how do you know the child was murdered? Like, what's your proof? And the guy up there answering the questions, you can just tell he's like, bro, this is not what this conference is about we've already solved that it was a murder like we already knew that in the 50s right this is about now we know the identity of the child Mm -hmm. yeah they could they're like could basically just read an article if you went to wikipedia you would know Mm -hmm. right it's like the first paragraph i don't know that just bothered me maybe that's me being nitpicky i don't know but that's all i have that's all the notes i have for the story of the boy in the box so guys if you have any questions or commentary or did you if you watch the link in the description of this press conference definitely hit us up on instagram or in our subreddit r slash let's get haunted and let's continue the conversation now natalia is going to give us a refresher on christmas tree jane doe yes december 1st 2021 we covered this in episode 94 titled christmas tree jane doe and here's a little refresher The week before Christmas of 1996, a mysterious unidentified female body was found next to a miniature decorated Christmas tree within the Pleasant Valley Cemetery, near the section designated for infant burials, although she wasn't near any grave in particular. The body had no identification, but there were two letters found in her pockets. One letter expressed that the woman had taken her own life, and she requested not to have an autopsy. The letter read, quote, Deceased by own hand. Prefer no autopsy. Please order cremation with the funds provided. Thank you, Jane Doe, end quote. Money for cremation was included in the letters, in the form of two crisp $50 bills. There was another letter that read, Now I lay me down to sleep, soon to drift to the eternal deep. And though I die and shall not wake, sleep sweeter will be than this life I forsake. Even more odd, the woman was extremely well-dressed and made up with high-end clothing from a local department store, well-done hair and makeup, and several precious gemstone jewelry. It appeared as if the woman had written the letters found in her pockets took some Valium, and drank herself into a twilight state while she decorated a tiny Christmas tree. She then put headphones on with a comedy tape playing, covered her head with a plastic bag, 
and suffocated to death. It appeared that there was no foul play, but many questions remain unanswered. Who was this woman? Was this all a setup? Was someone leaving clues for investigators? Or was it all just a coincidence? The case remained unsolved for several years with armchair detectives and people from the public who were passionate just about finding out about true crime and unsolved mysteries, posing all sorts of theories as to who the woman was or why this happened. But now we have the answers. This is a case from 1996, and we just got an update this year, July 7th, 2022. And I'm just going to read some quotes from the Washington Post because I felt like they did a good job with this case. Quote, Her name is Joyce Marilyn Meyer Summers, originally from Davenport, Iowa, the oldest of five children of Arthur and Margaret Meyer, according to DNA analysis and her family. She was 69 years old when her body was found, and her family has no idea how or why she decided to end her life in Annandale, Virginia, shortly before Christmas. Quote, the way she planned it out, that was her, said her sister Annette Meyer Clough, one of two remaining immediate family members. Quote, she was very careful. We could not find her. For a quarter of a century, the unidentified woman in Pleasant Valley Memorial Park was known as the Christmas Tree Lady because she had placed a small Christmas tree on a blanket next to her sometime early on December 18, 1996. In 2000, with help from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the police released a color drawing of the woman. In recent years, genetic genealogy has blossomed as a law enforcement tool in which forensic analysts try to match one person's DNA profile with another similar DNA pattern and comb through the family tree for connections. So in January, Othram Incorporated, a Houston area lab that has had success identifying remains found as far back as 1960, took on the case of the Christmas tree lady. In May, they got a partial hit. An 88-year-old man in Virginia Beach named David Meyer might be the woman's brother. Fairfax police cold case homicide detectives drove to Virginia Beach and showed him the color drawing of the woman, but he could not confirm that it was his sister because he hadn't seen her in at least 50 years. The woman had distanced herself from her family long ago. The man's family directed the detectives to a sister living outside Phoenix. The sister told investigators that the color drawing was 1,000% her older sister, Joyce. The detectives submitted DNA from her sister, and forensic genealogist Carla Davis confirmed that the woman, who had been unidentified since 1996, was Joyce. Quote, I was stunned, just stunned, her sister said. The family had looked for her. They were still looking for her a year after she had died. I am relieved to know that something horrible didn't happen to her. It sounds like something she'd been planning for a long time. In an interview, her sister related what the family knew of her sister, who essentially vanished in the 1980s. She said Joyce was born in July 1927, the oldest of three girls and two boys, and grew up on a farm outside Davenport, Iowa. She attended Iowa State University, then moved to Los Angeles, where she got a job at Seventeen Magazine and lived with an aunt. Quote, she was very creative and smart. She was artistic. Then, she left Seventeen Magazine to begin teaching second grade at a Catholic school in L.A. It was difficult, her sister said. She had 60 second graders, and she didn't have a background in education. She was very meticulous, staying up until the wee hours to do lesson planning. Around that time, she began seeing a psychiatrist. Quote, At that time, psychoanalysis was all about blaming the family, blaming the mother. It sort of estranged her from us and the family. Her sister said that she was first married in 1959 and then later divorced. 
At some time in the 60s, she said that their mother traveled to California for a 24-hour confrontation session with her, with her sister, in which Joyce accused the mother of being a terrible parent. Quote, it was just awful. It broke my mother's heart. Joyce continued to write letters to her older sister, but rarely revealed much when she replied. She moved to Seattle and married a man named James Summers, but didn't tell her family about the marriage. Police found a divorce certificate showing that the pair divorced in 1977 and did not have any children. Summers then moved to Tucson, Arizona, and lived in a trailer park. Quote, she wasn't very happy in that situation, her sister said. In the 80s, her siblings all went to visit Joyce in Tucson, where she asked the family to build her a house. The family could not afford to do that, and Joyce was unhappy. After that visit, she dropped off the face of the earth, her sister said. Her family did not hear from her again. Well, I actually know a little bit more about this case, too, um, just based off of uh, some things that I was reading. So I wanted to add to that wonderful article that you just read that when the brothers and sisters went to her trailer and found it abandoned, there were four copies of her novel that was called The Target Child. And I think perhaps that shows a little insight into what the motive might have been for why she took her own life. When I was covering this episode, there was a lot of questions that I had that I feel like are answered now from knowing how she felt about her own childhood and the relationship she had with her family. For instance, she was found with several items and one of them was like a child's fanny pack with like a little Mickey Mouse on it that was for a toddler or something. And she was also chose to take her own life by the infant section of the cemetery. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if in some way she was trying to release her inner child or that had something to do with her sort of fixation on the trauma that she had endured as a child. You know, maybe if we have any psychiatrists that listen to this show, maybe you can write in and tell us what was the state of psychoanalysis in the 60s. Neither of us were alive then, so I don't want to diminish anything that the family is saying about about the, the way mental health was treated back then. Maybe she f really fixated on this because that's something that her therapist was telling her or maybe she fixated on it because it was just a really fucking horrible experience that she couldn't move past and mm -hmm. to your point maybe going to a, uh, an area associated with children was something that was symbolic for her or brought her comfort i don't know i would love to hear what professionals in this area think about this i'm sure other people are thinking this so i'm just gonna go ahead and say it um I did think it was sort of an odd choice of words when her sister said that she was relieved something terrible didn't happen to Joyce, because to me, this does seem like a really terrible and tragic situation, but I also don't know what state of mind her sister was in when she gave that interview, so I, I don't want to criticize anyone or imply any criticism. She could have just been in a state of shock or just worded poorly what she wanted to say, like maybe she wanted to say, I'm relieved my sister wasn't murdered and it just came out wrong. Um, I don't know. I also saw some commentary online that I felt like deserved repeating where some people were pointing out that just because the family's point of view is that her sister wasn't abused by their mother doesn't make it the truth. So I just wanted to acknowledge that because obviously Joyce isn't here to give her side of the story. And the main point of this story at the end of the day, regardless of what the reality of the situation was at home, it doesn't take away from the fact that this is just a really horrible tragedy. And Joyce was clearly suffering alone. And her pain, I think, deserves to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. I think it says a lot if you name your book The Target Child versus mm -hmm. you name your book, you know, Rough Start. 
right? Like the the target child is implying that there was a target on this person and they were targeted by other people as to no fault of their own. Right. You know? mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think it says something into the person's psyche. So I can't speak to what that experience is like. And I, you know, this person's not alive anymore, so I'm not going to put words in their mouth. Um, however, I, I'm glad that we now have some answers at least. Yeah. And if anyone has access to the book Target Child, I'm assuming since it was self-published, there's nowhere for any of us to read it. But if for some reason someone stumbles across it and wants to email it to us, I would love to take a look at it. You can go ahead and email us. Let's get haunted pot at gmail.com. And just like with the story of the boy in the box, we would love to hear your opinions and let's keep the discussion going either on r slash let's get haunted, which is our subreddit, or you can go to our Instagram and comment on the most recent post. I don't think we're going to have a photo dump for this one. Maybe we will, um, but you can always comment on any of the photo dumps and we will see it. And congratulations to the genetic genealogists who worked on this and figured it out. And thank God we're living in an era with the technological capability of solving some of these crazy, mysterious, unsolved deaths from the past. And hopefully we can look forward to a lot more. Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to do more of these case updates on all of the stories that we covered because a lot of them, as we know, are very interesting because there are so many questions that are unanswered. So uh, cheers to a new year of hopefully tying up some loose ends and giving everybody some peace. Right. All right, guys, um, we will talk to you later. We're not going to do a sign off for this one. So we will just see you on Wednesday with our regularly scheduled episode. Bye. Bye. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.